0: We've been, we've been working our way through the, the book of Hebrews, and uh, as we've been doing that over the last few weeks... Uh, we've said some things, like the book of Hebrews talks a great deal about faith, and so we're going to come across some verses, and some of these verses you're going to become very familiar with by the time we're done, but as it talks about faith, it's going to describe faith and say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so we're going to talk about what does it really mean to walk in faith as a believer, and when we get there, we might be a little surprised to find that it's not always what most of us grew up in church thinking. And we've also uh, came to realize that when Paul writes this letter to these believers, they've been going through a very difficult time and they've had to walk through what we would call enduring faith. And so we're going to see when we get to Hebrews chapter 10, Paul recognizes and he says, you know, you sympathized with with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. And so, so Paul says, you know, in that time, many of them uh, had gone to prison because of their faith in Christ and many of them had lost their houses. Uh, Ten years ago, I shared with you how I went to China to get Hannah and we were kind of out in the outskirts of middle of nowhere and our our guide, his name was Jim, James, and that was his American name because none of us could produce, uh, pronounce his Chinese name. But we got into a conversation, and I said, James, I hear that, that Christianity is, allowed, is not allowed here. You know What happens when somebody becomes a Christian? And he went like this. "No, now, not now, not now. And so later on, when we were alone, I said, James, what, what happens? He says, in this country, out here, if you become a Christian, they come to your house, and they, they tell you to renounce it. And if you don't renounce it, they bulldoze your house. They don't let you go in and get anything. And then from that point on, you have nowhere to live and all you have is what you're wearing. And that's how serious they take it. So they were going through a very difficult time in the book of Hebrews. And even today in our world, many people go through a very difficult time because of their faith in Christ. And we've certainly seen some of the things that are happening right now in the Middle East. So we'll talk a great deal about enduring faith. And that's important because some of us right now are going through some difficult times. But then we're also going to talk about what we would call um, conquering faith. Now, conquering faith is very different. Paul will say, "...who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, and obtained promises, and shut the mouths of lions." And so God, in that time, even though it was a difficult time, was calling some many, uh, we would say many, to step up and step out and trust God to do some things that would be a great blessing for the Lord, but also a great blessing for many people. And here today in this congregation, there are a number of us where God is speaking to us and he's calling us to step up and step out and do something for the Lord. We're going to talk about how do you operate in conquering faith. So we'll travel, as we travel through, we'll talk about some of these things, but today, to Today, we are going to talk about the single most controversial passage in the book of Hebrews. And many say it's the single most controversial passage in the entire New Testament. So we'll see as we get into, the, into this today. Let me say on, on the front end of this that we only have so much time and there's so much more that can that can be said that that would go beyond our time today. So I'm going to stick with the main theme and walk through and uh, see where we wind up. But uh, there's a lot more that we can say. In this book, Paul is writing to a group of believers and he said some things, for instance, in chapter 2, there in your outline, he told how God went to great lengths to make us his family. And uh, there in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So we become the family of God, and that's the idea. Paul is writing, though, to a, a group of people who come from a particular religious background their background is judaism and as hebrews as jewish people they were very used to doing things to make themselves right with god and then doing things to keep themselves right with god and so paul has been talking to them because although they've heard the gospel and although they've heard that it's based upon what jesus has done not what you do because of their background, they're now drifting back, thinking maybe there's some things that we need to do to keep ourselves right with God, uh, to maintain this. And what happens if we don't maintain it? Can we lose this? So through this whole th- this whole book, we're going to see a theme as we travel through, and I place that there in your outline. As Paul talks to this group of people who are now drifting back, trusting and, and uh, going back to what they they used to do and what they used to trust in, Paul says in and in following jesus we have there in your outline a better hope than what they had before there's a better covenant you don't add anything to it it's based upon better promises we have a better possession Uh, there's a better country ahead for us a better resurrection and uh, that god had provided something better for us so So Paul is talking throughout this book that what you have in Jesus is so much better than what you had before. So don't run back to that. So um, we're going to see that as we travel through, as we've been traveling through. We came to chapter 4, and if you're there at chapter 4, I want you to look at verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10, as Paul's talking to this group of people who are now beginning to trust in doing things to keep themselves right or make themselves right with God, he says, for the one who has entered his rest, chapter 4, verse 10, he says, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. So, Paul is beginning this section that we'll be looking at today by saying that you need to rest in what it is that God has done for you. You're saved not because of anything you do. You don't keep yourself saved. It's because of what God has done. You just rest in it. Then we came to chapter 5. And last week we were in chapter 5. And in verse 9, we looked at the verse and it said, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of, of eternal salvation. And last week, we looked at that word eternal. Jesus is the source of that. We're not the source of that. And we looked at the word eternal in the, in the Greek language and also in the English language, and it means to have no beginning and no end. You are eternally saved, not based upon what you've done or anything that you do. Peter, uh, I placed a verse on your outline. Peter, on the other hand, who also was writing to Jewish believers, described our salvation this way. He said, those who are chosen, there in your outline, those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, God the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance, and Peter describes it this way, which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, and is reserved in heaven for you. But the part that I like is it says based upon the foreknowledge of god here 's what this means: God before you were ever born, knew all the stuff that you were going to do, and he still chose to save you uh, knowing all the stuff you would do that 's good and all the stuff that you would do that is not so good. It was based upon his his foreknowledge so our Hebrew believers today are drifting away from that understanding that it has everything to do with what Christ did. And they're thinking that there's some things that they might need to do. So in verse 12, there in chapter 5, he says, For that by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. So he says, you know, you've been around for a while. You should be teachers at this time. But, um, but now you need it explained to you again. And so then last week we looked at what are the elementary Um, teachings, the ABCs, and in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. And I want you to underline that word, maturity. And he says, And the first thing that we need to leave behind is not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So uh, when he says that word maturity, we need to move on to maturity. I want you to write this down as we get into this. It just the issue is maturity, not salvation. That's very important. So That's what he's talking about. So Christianity 101 is that when you come to Christ, you repent from any works that you're doing. There's nothing that you can do to make you right. There's nothing that you can do to keep it. You can't earn it. You can't maintain it. But this religious group was struggling based upon their background And as they do that, they're drifting back thinking, well, maybe there's some things that we need to do. So Paul, in this book, is overwhelmingly trying to convince them that you can rest in your salvation, that you can just enjoy this relationship with God. But then Paul says something that is often misunderstood. Although he's built that case, uh, there's this one passage that trips many people up. So we're going to look at that today, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. Now in verse 4, I'm going to have you underline a couple of words, but one word that you need to make sure that you underline is the word impossible. When you come to that word, you want to underline that. Some of you are going to have that word impossible in verse 4, and others in your translation, it will be in verse 6. let Let's see what Paul is saying. So in verse 4, he says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted, underline the word tasted, of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come uh, and then have fallen away. In my translation, it says it is impossible. If your Bible says impossible there, underline it. If your Bible says impossible in verse 4, underline it there. Uh, in a fallen way, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they, and all of our Bibles will have the word again, underline that word again, crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So again, this becomes the, the most controversial passage in all of the book of Hebrews and some suggest even in the entire New Testament. The first thing we want to clarify is who Paul is talking about. First of all, Paul here, write this down as talking about believers. It's talking about believers. Uh, you're you're going to go places and hear people talk about as they go through each one of these descriptions, and they're going to say, well, they, they weren't really believers. And so you read, it says in verse 4, in the case of those who once been enlightened, have tasted, I had you underline the word tasted, the heavenly gift. And they'll say things like, you know, they they were there and they they tasted it, but they never really took it in. They never really, and they'll go through each one of those things as though that didn't happen. Um, the, the challenge with that is there on your outline um, when it says "tasted the goodness of the Word of God." Does everybody see that? Okay, um, and they'll say, well, you know, they just sampled it, but they didn't really take it in, so that it became part of them. The problem with that is you look at that Greek word there, back in chapter two, verse nine. It talked about Jesus. And it says that he might taste death for everyone. So it's the same word. So the question is, did Jesus just sample death? Or did he take it all in? That's right. That's right. Just jump. You, you, you can't be wrong here. It's very, very clear. So just jump in. Okay. So so the idea is, is Paul here isn't saying that these are not believers who were there. They were close enough. Every one of these words I could go through and uh, we would see that what Paul is doing is Paul is overwhelmingly saying these are believers that he's talking about. So that's the first thing that we need to see. Now, um, uh, you are going at times to meet Christians who believe that when you are saved, you can lose that salvation. And what they will do is they will take you to this verse... And they will say, you know, here they were. They were this, this, and then they fell away. They fell away. And is that the point that Paul is making? Everyone who teaches that you can lose your salvation... Let me say that again. Everyone who teaches that you can lose your salvation will at the same time say, but you can be saved again. You can get saved again. However, Paul says, if you can lose your salvation, if you really can fall away then it would be impossible to renew you again to repentance. Let's look at that. Um, There in your outline, uh, in my translation, verse 6, he says, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Does everybody see that? And some of your verses have that in verse 4 where it says impossible. So, um, then some who would say that you can lose your salvation, they would say, well, that word... Um means it, it really difficult, but, but it wouldn't be just impossible. It would maybe it'd be hard to be saved again. So you say, well, does that word mean impossible, or does it mean really, really hard? And uh, it's interesting, because in the same chapters, we go down a few verses. When we get to verse 18, uh, it's going to say about God, it's going to say it's impossible for God to lie. And so would it be really difficult for God to lie, or would we say it'd be impossible for God to lie? There you go. See, you're going to get this right. You just jump in there. I promise you, you'll get it right. So it would be impossible for God to lie. So I want you to write this down. So Paul is saying, if someone could lose their salvation, it would be impossible to be saved again. And that's what it says. That's what it says. So far, so good? Now, here's why it would be impossible to lose your salvation and then be saved again. In verse six, he says, verse six, he says, they've fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves to themselves, the son of God, and put him to open shame. So here's what I want you to write down. The reason it would be impossible for somebody, if they could lose their salvation, to ever be saved again is that it would require to be saved again, Jesus would have to be crucified again. And you want to write that down. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God. So Paul is not saying here that you can lose your salvation. What Paul is saying, as he takes the whole book to tell his followers his uh readers that they need to rest in their salvation he is saying guys you can't lose it but if you could you have to understand you could never be saved again because the only way you could be saved again is that jesus would have to come back and die on the cross again and he's not going to do that that's the point that he's making so far so good okay you're not standing up running out of the room so so far so good so, so you, you can't lose it is the idea. And again, he says, if you could, you have to understand, you could never be saved again. It, it would be an internal thing. Those who teach that you can lose it always believe that you can be saved again. And they point to this verse to say that you can lose it. Paul says, it's not, it's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that as a believer, you can't, but if you could, you could never be saved again. That's the point. Then Paul says, and he takes the rest of the chapter to talk about this. He says, let's look at it like this. And in verse seven, he starts and he says, For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those whose forsake it is tilled, receives the blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. uh, It's close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. Some people would say it's not the ground that's burned, it's the stuff that's on top. You know, the stuff, he says, you know, it's close to being cursed, but it's not, uh, that's one possible way. But very simply, what he's saying here, and we'll unpack it, is that it's the, the evidence is what comes up. Write that down. The evidence is what comes up. Paul has been speaking to this group of Hebrew believers And here he says, you know, when when you look at what's coming up out of the ground, as I look into your lives, here's what I've seen come out of the ground. Uh, The evidence that you're saved is that when people were going through a very difficult time and they were going to prison, you were there for them. And uh, as they were coming in and asking you to deny Christ, and you wouldn't do that, and they took your house, you didn't renounce your faith, and they took, that, they, they took your house. He says, that's the fruit that's coming out of your life. So you don't need to be worrying about losing your salvation because there's fruit there. You, you should be able to look at what's going on in your life and know that, that you're saved. Jesus would say it like this there in your outline. He says, so that you will know them by their fruits. You know, so you, you just look and see what's coming up. And uh, Paul would say, what's coming up in your lives looks like you're believer's. Verse 9 and 10, he goes on and he says, but beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and the things that, and I want you to underline, accompany salvation, accompany salvation. Though we are speaking in this way, for God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown for his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So these people, although they're, they're questioning their salvation, they're still there for, for believers who are going through a difficult time. So he says, you're wondering if you can lose your salvation, but, but look at your lives. You've been there for people. You've not renounced Christ in some very difficult times. you you stood there. And God says, I'm still using you. My uh, favorite part there is in verse 9 where he says, the things that accompany salvation. And I hope you've underlined that. And the reason for that is that they were doing certain things, and those things just accompany salvation. You're here today um, because there's something inside of you that desires to learn more about this relationship with God. You have a hunger for the things of God. And those outside this building, up and down Indian Town Road, those around us, many hundreds of thousands of people, they have absolutely no hunger for the things of God. The, the, the fact that somebody has a hunger for the things of God is an evidence of salvation. Um, when a baby is born, you know, typically that baby is born and, and they become hungry very quickly. And they, they have to eat all the time, just be fed, fed, fed. And, and that doesn't take any coaxing that just because they're alive and they're well, they want to eat. It just happens. You know. But, but a baby that's not uh, alive would never, you can't coax that hunger. You can't make that hunger be there. And, and many of us know people who have absolutely no hunger for the things of God, no hunger. That's an evidence that something hasn't happened spiritually. And, and we know people that, that they come to church. But they come to church because their, their spouse makes them come to church. They come to church because they, you know, it's a place to meet other people, business connections. But they're not really hungry for the things of God. So just being here doesn't, doesn't make you a believer. But the evidence is that there's this desire to grow in this relationship. That's the evidence. And Paul says to these Hebrew believers, he says, look at the evidence in your life. You're hungry for the things of God. You're serving God. You're, you're, you're standing up for God. That's very different than somebody else. And so he he uses that. So then he goes on. And uh, in verses 11 and 12, I'm going to read it in our Bible. And then I'm going to read it there on our outline. He says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. And I want you to underline the word diligence. So as to realize the full assurance. And I've underlined the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So again, we've read it in our Bibles. I want to read it there on our outline just so that we're all reading from the, 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 same, um, the same translation. And here's what he says. Paul says, after all of this, he says, now we, I want you to know, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, and I want you to underline that, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Here's what Paul is saying. The call there is to be diligent to realize the full assurance of the hope. The call is not to be diligent to keep your salvation. Paul says, I want you to be diligent so that you realize the full assurance that you have here. You want to be diligent at something, be diligent at that. Then he goes on and he says, uh, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of the hope until the end. And then you notice it goes on and he says, so that. Does everybody see that? So that. Now here's the result of you realizing this full assurance that you have. So that you will not be sluggish. You will not be sluggish. Here's what he's saying. Full assurance. Of your salvation is the cure to spiritual sluggishness. Have you ever heard somebody say that if you tell people that they can't lose their salvation, they're just going to go do whatever they want to do? You ever heard that? Paul says that's a lie. Paul says, no, when you have the full assurance of your salvation, the result is you will no longer be sluggish about the things of the Lord when you really understand this. Then he goes on to say, He says, so that you will not be sluggish. He says, so here's what it's going to look like, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And I've underlined faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, notice there in verse 12, and we're going to talk about faith and patience in a moment, but he says, faith and patience inherit the promises, and that's plural. Does everybody see that? Now, he says that in the plural. He's speaking here of the promise singular of salvation, but then he says promises. How you respond to salvation is how you respond to all of God's promises. So he opens it up. So we're going to talk about that in the future, this uh, faith, and, um, faith and patience. And so he mentions faith and patience, in it, and it takes two. And then Paul says, and in case you're missing it, let me give you an example that you Hebrew believers would, uh, would fully understand. Now, we might not understand it, so I'll explain it as we travel through, but I'm going to pick it up in verse 13, and in verse 13, he says, now, here's the example that you all have to come back to, and uh, they got it. We, we sometimes miss it. He says, for when God made the promise, and I want you to underline promise to Abraham. Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Now, when Paul says, when he patiently waited, he obtained the promise. You and I would just read on, but the Hebrew people who are reading this, they would say, now, wait a minute, Paul, that's not all there is to the story. And Paul triggers something in their mind. So what's going on here? Paul um, reminds them of Abraham. If you you don't know the story of Abraham, uh, that's in Genesis chapter 12, and you can begin reading, and I've I've, uh, put that there on your outline, and and you'll see that in just a a moment. But um, when God comes to Abraham, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, this is what I am going to do. And he says, I'm going to, make you a great nation, you're going to have many descendants. And we all know the story that at that time, Abraham had never had a child. And God says, this is what I'm going to do. And you can read that in Genesis chapter 12. What God doesn't say is he doesn't say, this is what I'm going to do if you behave, you do well, you don't mess it up, you follow me in all things. God just says, this is what I'm going to do. God can swear by no one greater than himself. So he says, I'm just taking an oath. I'm just telling him this is what I'm going to do. It has nothing to do with anything that you do. This is just what I'm doing. So um, Abraham didn't bring anything to the table. And again, the promise there was to have many descendants. And so uh, I want you to write this down as we unpack it. The example that he gives is Abraham. So God's promise to Abraham required two things faith. And patience, faith and patience. He just had to wait for it and trust that God was going to do it. And by the way, this promise that God gave to Abraham would uh, take another 25 years. So just write that down, 25 years. He waits 25 years. So if you're ever frustrated over the fact that you've been waiting for a promise to take place and you're three, four, five years into it, well, Abraham had to wait 25. And, And there's a good chance that he might have had to wait even longer. But that's a story for another day. So Paul is talking about salvation, but he's using Abraham as the example. And so when you look at the story, you have to ask the question, while Abraham, there in your outline, while, while waiting, Abraham only had one thing to hold on to, one thing and one thing only, and it was God's word. Write that down. The only thing he could hold on to was what God said. There was nothing for him to do. I just, just had to trust what God said. And um, God said, I'm going to do this. And Paul says, that's how it is for you and I as it relates to our salvation. Which is why in verse 11, he says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance. There's nothing for you to do, just like Abraham. So write this down, let me say it another way. What did Abraham have to do? And then just write down, nothing but believe. But over time, as Abraham was waiting Time was ticking. Nothing was happening. Um, Abraham and Sarah, they got to thinking that um, God gave this promise, and uh, but it's not happening. So maybe there's something that we need to do. Maybe there's somehow that, that we need to do our part. You know, God's got his part. We've got our part. So, So what can we do to make this promise happen? And like our Hebrew believers who are now starting to trust in works, They're asking themselves, what do we need to do to maintain this salvation, to make sure that this promise of salvation actually comes true? So Abraham and Sarah, they begin to think. And one day, Sarah gets an idea. You know, God has his part. He's given the promise. But we need to do our part. Got this great idea. Abraham, um, how about you take a second wife? Her name is Hagar. Hagar. And uh, she, if she gets pregnant, then uh, we're going to have that child. And then that way we can fulfill God's promise. It'd be a great, great thing. So um, Abraham says, okay, he takes Hagar. Uh, the, uh, you can read the story. It's, it's, it's fascinating. But he takes Hagar to be his wife. And behold, behold, she gets pregnant. And when she gets pregnant, of course, Abraham and Sarah, they think, this is a God thing. You know, we, you know God has his part and we do our part. And uh, so they have a little boy and his name is Ishmael. And when Ishmael is born, from that point on, everything goes downhill. Downhill. And uh, so I want you to write this down. We would miss it, but the Hebrews that, that are reading this, they would not miss it. The problem is that Abraham tried to help God accomplish the promise. Abraham tried to help God accomplish the promise. And right now, you and I, thousands of years later are still feeling the effects of what happened since Abraham tried to help God accomplish God's promise. Make sense? And then I want you to write this down. One of the other things that we see, and we would miss it, but these Hebrews that he's writing to, Hebrew believers, they wouldn't miss it. But God never recognized Abraham's attempt to fulfill God's promise. God never recognizes Abraham's attempt to fulfill God's promise. As a matter of fact, he has one son named Ishmael. Later on, God gives the promised son from which the many descendants would come from, and his name is Isaac. So we all know that he's got Ishmael, he's got Isaac. But uh, when God speaks to Abraham, notice what he says there Genesis 22. God's speaking, and he says, he said, take now your son, and what's that next phrase? Your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Now that's a whole other story there. But the point that you and I need to get from that is that God never recognized Abraham's attempt to help the promise come true. And so just as God doesn't recognize uh, our attempts to make his promise of salvation come true, and that's the picture and the illustration that he uses. Do you find that interesting? It yeah. goes on a little bit further. Verse 16, he says, "'For men swear by one greater than themselves.'" And with them, an oath is given as confirmation as an end of every dispute. You you make your oath, and that's it. In the same way, desiring, now you're going to want to underline a couple of things, desiring even more to show to the, and I want you to underline, the heirs of the promise. There's that promise again. Just like I made a promise to Abraham, I've made a promise to you. Abraham inherited the promise. You're going to inherit the promise. The heirs of promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, with which it is impossible for God to lie, we... Who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement. Strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Now, what I what I love about this, God made a promise. God made a promise. Abraham helped with the promise. Abraham helped with the promise. Didn't help anything. We're still feeling the effects of it today. So write this down. Abraham's failure didn't change God's promise. Abraham's failure did not change God's promise. Um, one guy has a wife, decides to take another wife, has a baby through that wife, creates all types of problems. We would call that a bad thing, typically in our society, right? In, our, in my house, it would be called Dan is dead, but you know, how, however it is in, in your house. you know. So the thing is, it, it doesn't work out. Abraham botched it. He did bad. Because he did this... It, Isaac, Ishmael, that whole Ishmael thing, you and I are feeling the effects thousands of years later. If anybody had a good uh, cause to lose their salvation, have God turn around and say, you are not getting this promise, uh, it would be Abraham. And God says, but Abraham's failure did not change. God's promise. Because God's promise to Abraham had nothing to do with Abraham's behavior. Now, as God's, as Abraham's failure didn't change God's promise, write this down in the same way, our failures don't change God's promise. So Paul says in verse 17, we are heirs of the promise. It's already been given to us. We have the promise of salvation and it's greater than what he gave to Abraham. So um, in verse 18, he says, and I want you to know it's impossible for God to lie. So you're going to have that. And all of that is to be, and I've had you underline in verse 18, a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. So he says, just like Abraham didn't botch it with his behavior, you don't botch it with your behavior. Because the promise that God made to Abraham had nothing to do with Abraham's behavior. The salvation that you've received has nothing to do with your behavior. It has to do with the foreknowledge of God who chose you knowing all the stuff you and I were going to do. And that we've done some stuff. So verse 19, he says, he concludes with this and he says, Now this hope we have as an anchor, and I've underlined anchor, of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast uh, and the one that enters within the veil lot there but uh, you might want to just write this down the hope of our salvation is our anchor this hope i put on your outline salvation which we have is an anchor of the soul hope both sure and steadfast which one enters within the veil make sense now, now here, here's here's why it's so important that you, you you trust god for your salvation a few moments ago as we were talking and uh paul says that that the way, you know, you, you have faith and, and you have patience and you inherit the promises. If you can't trust God with your salvation, if you go through life always wondering, am I saved? Am I not saved? Do I have it? Something I have to do? Am I good enough? You know, what, what do I got to do? You, if you can't trust God with that, there's no way you'll ever be able to launch out and trust God with anything greater because you can't trust God with something greater if you're always wrestling with, am I saved? And so Paul wants to dispense with that. You rest in that. It has nothing to do with your deeds, past, present, future. In our house, we have 11 kids, and I've told you some stories through the years. Uh, It was two years ago, three years ago, when at that time, my five-year-old went out into the front yard, took a rock, and carved her name on the side of uh, my car door. Down to the metal. (laughs) And she wrote it backwards, by the way. So <laughs> thinking I wouldn't figure it out. <laughs> but, but, you know, those behaviors don't change anything. They're still my children. I still knew that they, they would do some things as we went. And there's some stories I won't tell you. But, but I, I know it on the front end going that there's going to be some things. Jesus would say, you are to be born again. But he doesn't say be born again and again, and again. And every once in a while, somebody will say, what about that verse? You know, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Prophesy and depart from me. Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. We're all familiar with that verse, right? Just remember that that verse, Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. He doesn't say, I knew you for a while, but then you kind of messed up and you're gone. didn't really know you then. Brought you back. Mm -hmm." (laughs) I never knew you. John would say in First John, he would say they went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And so the evidence is what you see coming out. In my family, I know that sometimes my kids are going to blow it and they're going to blow it royally. That doesn't change my love for them and it certainly doesn't change the fact that they're my children. What it means is dad's going to step in and do what dad needs to do to bring them back to where they need to be. We get that as parents. We get that there is nothing our children could ever do to not be our children. But then we turn around to God, who overwhelmingly tells us of grace and mercy and how he's done it all. And we think that there's a certain point where he's done with us. Without meaning to do that, what we do is we are establishing ourselves as better and more loving parents than God. That's a dangerous theological place to be. If you're a believer here today, Paul would tell you he wants you to come to the place where you rest in that relationship. And once you rest in that relationship, now you can move on. Which is why the very first thing that we talked about and chapter six was the repentance from dead works because it doesn't help you at all. You rest in this relationship and then you move on. I love seeing my kids in our house. And as you know, there's 11 of them at home. Nothing works in our house. Everything is broken. It's been broken for years. We don't even try to fix it anymore. <laughs> so why bother? So, but I would hate... For my children to constantly live with the anxiety of wondering, do you love me? Am I your child? Did I do something that's beyond your ability to let Have you disowned me? That just would raise some very emotionally destroyed children. Do you agree with that? It's just not how you raise children. We're not better parents than our Heavenly Father. We're not better parents than Him. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. Now, again, as a dad, there are times when I will step in very strongly in my children's life, and I will create a very awkward and painful situation that would might describe as being memorable. But the point, the, the point is, but they're still my children, and uh, God wants you to rest in that, and until you rest in that, you'll never be able to go forward with the full assurance and actually step out and trust and accomplish something great for God until you settle that. Make sense? Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this congregation and and Lord, just your word and and Lord, how you, you try so many ways and so many times to do everything that you can to tell us how much you love us and how much you care and how much you have given us grace upon grace and you have an everlasting love for us and you've given us an eternal salvation and, and you invite us to step into that relationship. Not because of anything that we do, but because of what you've done. If you're here today and you've never entered into that relationship, you know you can do that today. By simply inviting him to step into your life, accept his forgiveness of anything you've ever done, anything that's a barrier between you and him, and invite him to step into your life. And he promises that if he steps in, and you really mean that, that he'll step in and he'll never leave. And it's from that point that he begins to grow us and he begins to move in our life and take us according to his path. And if that's you today, just know that you've never met a believer who's ever said, I wish I would have waited just a little bit longer before I came to the Lord. You've only met people who said, why did I wait? Because as we started, he has a better hope, a better resurrection, a better plan, a better covenant. And that's his desire for you. The very reason he created you in the first place is because he wanted to have that relationship with you. That's his desire, that's why he created you. But you do get the choice, you can accept, you can enter in, or you can say it's not for me. If that's you today, and you'd like to invite Jesus in, you'd like to begin that relationship, find out what it's like to walk with God, After the service, there's going to be some prayer partners standing by. Before you leave here today, I would encourage you to make your way to the front after the service and pray with one of the prayer partners and just say, I I want that. Solidify that decision and begin that new life. And if you're here today and you've wrestled, am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Am I... Whatever, whatever, whatever. My hope and God's hope is you come to the place that you rest in that relationship and anything that you do beyond that is because you love God and he loves you, but not to get his approval because you already have that. Father, I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys.